Luke 22, verses 21 through 34. Or actually, I'm going to begin at verse 14, but the sermon will be focused on verses 21 and following. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. That's for the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. I'm going to set this up here so it's out of my way. Sorry. It's just audio. I think I did not pray either, so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would give us clarity of mind and uh, open hearts and minds to hear your holy word and to heed it and to glorify you through it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our sermon is Betrayal and True Leadership. Uh, in politics and the church, too often today especially, we see those seeking leadership only to serve themselves and not others. What are the causes of that? Well, our text tells us, and we can kind of guess it ourselves, I trust, there's greed there's boast of self-importance. These are all right recipes for betraying ultimately the Lord himself, but also others, those whom you are supposed to be serving. But God says that the humble servants of the Lord in due time will be exalted by the Lord to truly exercise leadership, to truly rule through sacrificial service for others. 
And so our sermon theme is that the greedy and boastful betray the Lord, while the humble lead by serving his people. The greedy and boastful betray the Lord, while the humble lead by serving his people. And then we're going to look at our first point, verses 21 through 23. Judas's greed and love of money lead him to betray Christ and receive judgment. Secondly, Christ teaches that true leadership is humble service that endures trials. True leadership is humble service that endures trials. And finally, thirdly, Christ warns that boastful Peter will deny him, but Christ promises to bring Peter back to faithful service. So we're going to look at these three points together. And beginning there at verse uh, 21 in Luke chapter 22, this is right after the Lord's Supper has been instituted, and we talked about that some last week, and at the same time as the celebration of Passover, and we brought in all the themes of that coming together as Christ is our Passover lamb, and after he is slain, he will rise again over sin and death and the devil, and ultimately bring himself in glorified human flesh as the God-man back to the Father's right hand in heaven above to make a home there for us eternally as well, ruling and rolling, ruling over the creation, worshiping and adoring him forever. Well now, again, he's in the upper room here where they're celebrating the Passover on the, the night that he's going to be betrayed. And he says here in verse 21, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Now think about that. This is the table of fellowship the table of communion with God and with Christ. And at that very table, the hand by which he would be delivered over and betrayed, Judas, is there. And Christ is identifying his betrayer. And we know from the other Gospels, uh, Matthew uh, and Mark in particular, there's a lot more detail and so on that is given about the dipping in the cup with him and, and the ways that he identifies Judas and so on. But notice... For now, our purpose is to notice here, he says, he identifies him again, or he notes that his betrayer is with him there at the table. But look at verse 22. It says, truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that all of this is happening, all of Satan's plottings and schemings. Nevertheless, behind it all is the sovereign plan and purpose of God himself. To bring about his purposes. It is not merely that God foreknows what's going to happen and reacts to it and scrambles around trying to fix it, but actually the devil is simply fulfilling and playing into God the Father's hand to bring about salvation of his people, to bring about the glorifying of his Son over sin and death and the devil, to defeat it and condemn it and to redeem his people. And so he again reminds them of this, because the disciples, as we will see and have seen, they're kind of stupid, like it says in Proverbs sometimes. They're not heeding instruction. They're dim-witted, and they're frightful, and they're afraid. And frankly, aren't we like that sometimes, too, as God's people still today? But he says, really as a way of, this is all happening according to God's plan, but also to comfort his people, his disciples there with him in the upper room, truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's part of God's sovereign plan, but man still acts according to his own nature and his own will. So Judas is acting. He's going to betray according to his own sinful desires. So Christ says, woe to that man 
Woe to those who betray the Lord, especially Judas, but all who deny the Lord. The judgment will indeed come upon them. And so then in verse 23, they begin questioning among themselves which of them it was that would do this thing. And in the other Gospels you read, and it says they, they all begin asking, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And then ultimately Judas himself says, Lord, is it I? And Jesus says, you have said it. And then after that, Judas departs from them and goes to betray to the Jewish leaders and soldiers and so on who are going to take Christ in the middle of the night. Now, some of the things that you read in the Gospel of Luke chronologically is not in the same places or order as Matthew and Mark. And so as we go through this, and especially verses 24 through 30, these accounts, it seems like there's several different times and places where the disciples have asked these same sorts of questions, boasting in their own greatness and so on. But we have to remember that Luke in particular, he opens in chapter 1 and says to Theophilus, whom he's writing to, that he's writing an orderly account to put together the doctrine, the teaching, the themes to this Theophilus, who is not a Jew, but a Greek. So he's kind of an outsider trying to understand this What's going on among the Jewish people here in recent days? Well, Luke is writing for that especially theological purpose, and so not everything in here is necessarily uh, structured by Luke in a chronological way compared to, say, Matthew, Mark, and, and even John. So that's not uh, the focus when you compare these to the other Gospels and so on here. But the theological point that is being made, again, is that God has sovereignly determined this. In fact, even the wicked and their destruction, Proverbs 16, 4 says, the Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. He will be glorified even through the punishment of the wicked, of the wicked showing his justice that he is not one who tolerates sin and evil and so on. Well, what is happening to Christ here? A close companion is betraying him, Judas. And why is Judas doing this? Well, like our sermon theme and point says, out of greed and a love for money. We read in the other Gospels that he was in charge of the money box. And what did he do with it? He, do you know, kids, what did Judas do with that money box? Anybody know? Children? Okay. What's that? Okay. Well, he took, he took money out of it. That's right. He would steal from it regularly. That's, that's absolutely right. And so he was already, not known by the others, but secretly, Greedy, taking money, and he betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And remember, we talked about that was like the lowest price for a slave that was killed by an animal uh, in the Old Testament. They, they lowly valued the precious life of Christ. And so for a small amount of money, relatively speaking, Judas betrayed his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Christ has told his apostles already, if you go to Matthew chapter 10, He's sending them out to wicked people around them. That he, they are like sheep in the midst of wolves. And so he calls them to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent or as harmless as doves. So we must trust the Lord through trials. We must not be foolish. We must not be simple-minded. We must cultivate wisdom. Indeed, it sounds quite provocative for Christ to say to be as wise as serpents, because we know how the serpent is identified with Satan. But Christ says, have that same craftiness and wisdom, but in innocence, in righteousness, in harmlessness as a dove. Because the wicked are prowling about, as Satan prowls about, seeking whom he may devour. But in Christ, we can overcome these tricks and these treacheries. 
And yet we know in this fallen world still, we face those friends, family, loved ones, God forbid, some of our own children, etc., who fall away and depart from the faith, who leave the fold. And ultimately, of course, it's a betrayal of Christ, but it's also a betrayal of family and friends. It may not even be at that level of, of a faith or salvation thing, per se. It may be a lesser betrayal, or however we want to conceive of it. It's, it's, it hurts. It's challenging for those who loved and those we trusted, for them to rise up and speak against us. Well, Christ, as our great high priest, knows what it's like to be betrayed. And to be left and forsaken of by his disciples, all of them. So he can comfort us and sympathize with our weaknesses and also the things that we face in this life. The trials and hardships and especially the pain of somebody we love betraying us. And so the Lord would call us to trust in him and follow him. And he's saying this to his apostles here as well. That all these things are happening according to the plan and purpose of God himself. So we must keep our own hearts from a love of money, from greed for gain, and prominence for prominence's sake, for self-importance sake. No, we should not pursue those things. The Lord says it is better to have a little where there's happiness and mirth and godliness than to have great revenues and vast resources of wealth where, there, where there's bitterness and strife. We are to pursue to set our hearts on the things of God, where treasures do not rust away as they do on earth. The heavenly treasures of God and Christ and his kingdom and holiness and godliness and serving him and loving him and loving one another, these are riches that endure and last forever. Those who are wealthy, Hollywood, sports stars, whatever, how often are they miserable because they are godless? Scripture says it's hard for the wealthy to serve the Lord. Not impossible. It's not a sin to be wealthy, but with your wealth, serve the Lord. Don't pursue wealth for wealth's sake. Pursue the Lord for his sake, and he may indeed bless you even in this life financially, but that is not to be our aim and our goal in and of itself. That seemed to be Judas's purpose, and look where it led him to betray Christ. He was with Christ so long as he had access to the money box, so long as he could dip into that and maybe be regarded as a high and holy one of the inner circle of the twelve apostles, all was well. But look how he was rotting away within, and it led to him for a low amount of money to betray Christ. And as you know, he ended up throwing that money back at the temple and the priests, who were all corrupt as well, and then goes and hangs himself and suffers God's wrath forever. And so it is a lesson for us to guard our hearts and seek the Lord and not lesser things. Well then, our second point, Christ teaches that true leadership is humble service that endures trials. All the disciples must understand this, because all of them were struggling, probably with greed, but certainly we see here, see here with boasting and self-importance. So Christ is going to teach them that this is not what true leadership is meant to be. This is not what I'm seeking to cultivate in you as the apostles who will lay that foundation for the New Testament church, the church now in Christ's blood. If you go to verse 24, really look at verse 23 and then verse 24. After this really solemn you know, warning that Christ says, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and you're sitting there, and there's just 12 of you, and you're wondering, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, surely I wouldn't do this. I would hope the last thing in your mind would then be to start boasting and disputing about which of you is the greatest. 
<laughs> right? Like, this is not at all what Christ was wanting them to start thinking and doing. Oh, what I need you to do now is to prove to me you're not going to be betraying me by disputing about why you're greater than everyone else. That obviously was not what Jesus is saying. He's calling them all to humility. He's calling them all to say, examine yourselves, lest there be a root of bitterness or betrayal in the heart of any of you. Be sober. Instead of thanking the Lord that he's identifying the betrayer and warning them of this thing, they start arguing about which of them is the greatest among them. This is not a new thing for the disciples. We've seen this already in Luke, and we see it in the other Gospels as well. And so to underscore the point, and the text, and the application, therefore, to our own lives to avoid this, let's take a little bit of time to look at how this has already happened in the Gospels. So, if you go to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, you can go there, or you can also go to Mark 10, 41 through 45, you have a similar dispute. Yes, before they're taking the Lord's Supper, uh, I believe it's before they're even entered into Jerusalem, but a very similar thing happened then. James and John, the sons of Je uh, Zebedee, they desired to sit on the left and right hand of God in heaven. They actually, uh, the, the accounts record it differently. One, their mother comes and goes to Christ and like almost demands that Christ will do that for her sons. And the other, it's sort of like presented like they're the ones who maybe told their mother to go and ask that for them. Right? This is just kind of ridiculous stuff that they're doing here. Now, why is it that James and John in particular might feel like they could boast of such prominence and importance? Well, remember, we talked about it also in Luke chapter 9 last week, the Mount of Transfiguration. Who does Christ take up there with him? Only uh, Peter, James, and John. And so you can see why they were sort of the cream of the crop in their minds. Like, we alone got to go and see the glory of God in Christ on this mountain. Well, we must be extra special. Christ, let us sit on your left and right hand upon your throne in glory. That is what they were asking and demanding. Well, in Matthew 20 and Mark 10, the reply Christ gives is essentially the same as we have in our text of Luke 22, verses 25 and following. It doesn't appear to be the same account unless Luke is borrowing from that earlier account and interjecting it here, but it seems to be that this was a separate instance, and Christ, you know, sometimes you have to be a broken record to your children. He gives the same reply to them more than on, on more than one occasion. In this case, it seems that all the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest among them, but we also know that there's multiple situations of that. So, when you go to Mark 20, for example, Christ speaks to them and says, you do not know what you're asking. And he says that he has to, Christ has to face a baptism, a baptism of judgment, of the curse that the Father will put upon him as he atones and pays for sin. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with or to uh, take and drink of the cup that I am to, to drink of? And they say, yes, we are, not knowing what they're saying. And of course, they're not able to. And yet, Christ says, you will partake of this cup. Well, that even itself is a message of the Lord's Supper and Communion. Because the cup of the covenant is the cup in Christ's blood. Not our blood, and yet we do take of that cup in communion with Christ, in union with him. We are baptized into Christ. We are taking of the cup into Christ. It says we have been buried with Christ in a 
deaf like his, and we are raised up in Christ and his likeness and so on. We are, we have, if we are in Christ, passed through judgment in him. We have gone through the judgment, the death in Christ. That is how we are saved. Literally through union with Christ. Going through his baptism. But it's not a baptism in our blood. It's not a righteousness of our own. It is Christ's righteousness, his blood, that covers and saves us, that we are savingly brought into by faith. And so Christ is saying, you can't make this covenant. You can't shed this blood for salvation, but you will partake in it because you shall be saved. And that's true for each and every one of us if we are in Christ, that we have passed through death into new life, raised up in him, in union with Christ. And so we do have a participation in his body and blood. Yes, in the Lord's Supper, there's a communion meal that is a symbol of that in the bread and wine that really presents Christ to us spiritually. And by faith, we are nourished in him, even as we are nourished through the preaching of his word and singing praises to him and worship and at home with our families and so on and so forth as well. And so because the apostles in particular and all of us are in Christ, what does he call us to as Christians? Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. You will face hatred and hostility and hardship in this life. But also he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So we are to take up our crosses, not to atone for ourselves, but because we're in Christ and we're to be like him. And so we follow in his footsteps, serving him and not sin. All faithful Christians, ultimately, will face some measure of hardship and hostility from the enemy. But the Lord is well pleased with us. He surrounds us like a shield. He protects us and guides us and leads us as we are faithful to him. So sanctification, growing in holiness and godliness, taking dominion uh, over this sin-cursed earth, all this, in a way, is to say to take up your cross and follow Christ. Well, this theme uh, that we're speaking of here uh, is often missed and misunderstood and misapplied by the disciples. In Luke and in the other Gospels, there's this refrain and connection between Christ revealing his majesty. Now, really, I'm, I'm sure we could go all the way back to the Old Testament and see this repeated throughout, but just looking at it in the Gospels... Christ, God, somehow, someway reveals his majesty, his splendor, his power. There's a great deliverance. You know, Pharaoh in Egypt parting the Red Sea, whatever the case may be. God's power is displayed in a mighty act or a manifestation of his glory, like the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's shining bright white. Something like that appears of God's splendor. And then Christ announces in the Gospels his coming betrayal to his disciples. But they're living on this high of Christ's glory. They don't want to see it. They don't get the point. They miss the point. And then they start arguing about their own greatness. This happens again and again and again. Instead of marveling at the greatness of God and then listening and hanging upon every word of his mouth, they just disregard it. And they start boasting about their own greatness. It's complete nonsense and wickedness. But we... As sinners, even as Christians, can still do the same as well. So look at, let's look at how the apostles do this in Scripture. It's right there in Luke chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down from the mountain the next day, Peter, James, and John, with Christ. After they just saw a manifestation of Christ and his glory and Moses and Elijah and so on and so forth, 
After seeing all that, I can't imagine you would boast in yourself. And yet, they come down from there. The other apostles have been waiting. And what happens? Well, there's a man that cries out. Just a man in the crowds that were there. They cry out to Christ for the sake of his son, his only son. A demon has possessed his son. It's seizing him, convulsing him, bruising him. This man pleads and begs with Christ, please heal my son. And he spills the beans and he says, I asked your disciples to do it, evidently the ones that were down there, but they couldn't do it. They were unable to serve because they lacked a faith in the Lord, a faith looking outward, not boasting in themselves, but to God's power to serve him. Now in the context there in Luke 8, Luke 9, Christ had just commissioned his apostles and just had just given them power and authority over demons to cast them out and so on. He had just equipped them with that. And they were still coming you know, with Christ and reporting back to him and so on of their successes and, and such. Well, Christ laments when he hears this in Luke 9, 41. And he says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? And then he bring, has the child brought to him, and he heals that child himself. And what does it tell us? Remember, this is the day after the Mount of Transfiguration. Now all the crowds see God's mighty power and healing. They're amazed at his majesty. And, and it's seen his loving, merciful service here. And that goes back to our second point, our theme that we're going to develop as we go here, that true leadership is humble service. Christ chose his humble service, even though he's a true leader here. They're marveling at that. And yet it says in Luke 9, 44, he, he says let, to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears that the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Saying, yes, this is wonderful, but it's going to get rough, it's going to get rocky. But it goes on and tells us in Luke 9, they didn't understand this. The disciples, they missed it. And they were afraid to ask him about it because they knew it didn't sound good. The very next verse, verse 46, guess what they're doing? They're disputing among themselves about who would be the greatest. That's what they took from that. We're going to argue about our own greatness rather than heed the coming hardship that, that they're going to face. They were already unable to heal due to a lack of faith. They're firmly rebuked by Christ. They see his majesty. Instead of worshiping him in humility and their own ineptitude, confessing that, they're boasting again about their own greatness. The faith they have is so much in themselves at this point in time that it just reeks, right? It reeks to high heaven. They're looking to their own power, not Christ, who gifted them. Now, quite obviously, Christ gave the apostles unique giftings here to drive out demons and do miracles. We're not, um, you know, Presbyterians aren't known at all as charismatics. We're not talking about going around and, you know, if we had enough faith, we could just, you know, slay people in the spirit or something like that. But the apostles were called and gifted for these things at that time. And they did not trust the Lord. They did not have faith. And so they were rebuked. And their pride was in the way. Well, Christ goes on in Luke 9. And he says, again, how do we lead by service in true humility? He says, receiving little children in his name is to receive him. And ultimately, if you receive Christ, you receive God the Father who sent Christ, who is, of course, God the Son. And so Christ says, the least among you all will be great. You want to truly be great? You truly want to be great in the Lord and the kingdom of God? Humble yourselves, he's saying. Serve those who are the most needy, the most vulnerable, like our precious children, like those in our own homes and households. That shows true greatness when you help the most vulnerable. You won't get praise and accolades for that, but 
you will get it from God, and that's the only one who we really should be desiring to have praise from. And he will reward us richly by his mercy and grace. You cannot serve a child by reducing yourself to a child. That's a, a, a common mistake, I believe, that is prevalent in our culture and elsewhere. That, well, I need to just be a, a playmate or a buddy with my children. Or, you know, we have to reduce, you know, humility doesn't mean divesting yourself of authority as a parent, for example. Uh, no, we don't stoop down in that sense. Uh, humility doesn't require denying the fact that there's, you know, parents and there's pastors and there's governors and there's teachers at the schools and there's authority structure. But the point of leadership and authority and rule is to serve the people, not boast in yourself. Right? That is the aim. That is the goal. So service and mercy and compassion. Yes, from a position of power and leadership held in humility, that is what Christ calls us to. Now, this is certainly applies to the apostles in the church, but anywhere there's structure, and there should be structure everywhere, this applies. Right? Whether it's, you know, the, the police force or a board meeting at a school, uh, inside of the church, outside of the church, whatever it is, this is the paradigm that ought to be followed. And for most of us, whatever position we're in, except maybe for the most, you know, young children here, we all find ourselves in the position of authority in some things and in the position of a servant and under authority at times, depending on where you're at, your work, your business, church, wherever it may be. And so we're all wearing different hats, if you will, but when we're in positions of authority or leadership, teaching, guiding, whatever it may be, you know, maybe you're the uh, shift leader at Chick-fil-A, which I think multiple people in this room have been or whatever, you know, lead in love, lead in humility. Now, I don't know who would boast of that to begin with, but, you know, lead with humility and serve the Lord with gladness. And when we're under authority of others, even if we don't like the people over us, if they're not commanding us to do something wicked and sinful, serve them in humility and gladness as unto the Lord. Of course, this applies especially in the home, husband and wife, children to parents, parents to children, and so on and so forth. But instead, what are the disciples doing? They're arguing. They're jockeying for position on who is greatest in Christ's kingdom. That is not how we are to live. That is the polar opposite of how we are to be in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God, if we are in it at all, truly is only by his grace. Not merit, but grace. So, Christ goes on. And um, actually... So he says that in Luke 9. Then in Mark 9 and 10, the same thing happens back to back in two chapters. He says the same sorts of things. He's going to be betrayed after he does a healing. And he's going to be killed and, and rise on the third day. They're traveling on the road. The disciples, again, they start disputing about their own greatness. This, this seems to be a common theme among the disciples to boast of their own greatness. In this case, Jesus asked them, hey, what you talking about over there? And they're ashamed to answer because they know that he knows what they're talking about. And so nobody answers them. I mean, imagine not answering Jesus because you've been arguing about your own greatness. Well, this is the kind of thing that they were doing. Well, then you go on and it says in Mark 9, once again, Jesus takes a little child in the midst of them, takes the child into his arms and says to receive these little children in his name. And doing so is to receive Christ himself and the Father himself. The same sort of thing is repeated there. The very next chapter, Mark 10, others now are bringing young children 
infants even, to Christ for him to touch them and pray for them and bless them. And he's going to receive them into his arms, just as he did in Mark 9. Well, what do the disciples do? Do they get the message finally and say, bring them on in. This is what we need to be about, ministering to the youth and the least among us and raising them up in the nurture of the Lord. No, they rebuke the parents who are bringing the children to Christ, trying to forbid them and prevent them from doing so. The disciples are rebuking the very ones who are honoring and doing what God commands. And then we read what Christ says. He rebukes the disciples in Mark 10, 14. He's greatly displeased with them. And he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. And he tells us why. It's not an object lesson because for of such is the kingdom of God. Now there's a whole point we could make about those belonging to the kingdom should receive the sign of the kingdom and the covenant of baptism for us and our children. The point is, the disciples were rebuking the precious children from being brought to Jesus. Jesus again and again says, no, that is like the heart of the faith, is to raise our children in the Lord and to bring them in. And the orphans and the widows and the most needy among us should be brought into Christ and we should minister to them as a church and so on. And so Christ then takes those children into his arms, lays his hands on them, prays for them, and blesses them. Well... Why did the disciples not do this? It seems they thought their work was too important to help these little needy, annoying children. And let's be honest, yes, our children can be annoying <laughs> and hard and a burden, and yet God calls them a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And he blesses faithfulness to him as we raise them for the Lord. The Lord calls us his children and his sheep. we already seen that sometimes we're called stupid in the Bible, that we're stubborn, that the Lord must lead us back into his pastures because we play at the edges of the cliffs and we get surrounded by the wolves and we cave into sin and so on. We're often wayward. Christ has to constantly correct and rebuke us. He lovingly and tenderly guides and cares for us and also, when necessary, uses that shepherd's rod to discipline and strike and rebuke us, to chastise us. But always in love, indeed, always as Lord God Almighty in true service for us as his people. Now, what greater service of love from the position of supreme authority and power can there be than God Almighty taking on human flesh precisely to die in the flesh? on a torturous cross for his own people, his own people who were his enemies. The Jews, the Gentiles, rejecting him. We were all enemies of God before we were saved by Christ because of our rebellion and sin. They cried out for his crucifixion, yet he died for his beloved people. Well, I hate to say it, but it goes on in Mark chapter 10. Christ again <laughs> takes aside the 12 apostles and says they're going up to Jerusalem. So we're going to go into Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes. And by Judas, who was there with them, hearing all this, of course, he will be condemned and delivered over to death. But the third day he will rise again. The very next verse, you have that account in Mark 10.35 of James and John coming to Christ, asking Christ to do whatever they want for him, to sit on his left and his right hand. They're not interested in the hardship to come. They're not interested in humility. The theme, again and again and again and again, is to lead by service in humility, as Christ himself did. Not by emptying himself of his divine nature. He's still in the flesh fully God, but he comes in likeness of 
a humble servant. And then in Mark 10, the same words we have in Luke 22, verses 25 and following, are repeated. So let's look at Luke 22, 25 and following directly now. The verse, uh, verse 25, where Christ says to them, after, while they're disputing about who is the greatest, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Well, that word benefactor, and it may be translated differently given what Bible translation you have, it was a title of honor upon those who had done service to their country. It was given to princes and those of other uh, noble distinction and had done mighty and wonderful things. Well, he's saying, verse 26, this is not how it's going to operate among you. One, because Christ alone is the king. He alone is the worthy and glorious one. And everybody brought in, born again of the spirit, are brought in by his sheer sovereign grace and mercy, not because of any good in ourselves that we have done, but only the goodness of God alone. And so he's saying, why are you boasting? You're brought in by grace, not by merit. You're not a benefactor. You're not, uh, you're not somebody who did some mighty thing so that you're wearing a crown and walking around with a flowing robe and everybody's kissing your ring. Like You weren't chosen because you were something special. None of you in here were chosen because you were something special. None of us. We're all sinners. Well, Christ says the same thing to his Twelve apostles, and even James and John, who were on that inner circle with Peter among them. Now, again, we've said this before. Yes, in heaven there's degrees of reward, even though those are all graciously given by God. Yes, those who pursue righteousness more in this life by the strength of God, the Lord does bless that in greater measure. That is true. But even then, those who are serving the Lord faithfully and mightily are doing it not in themselves, not by their own power but by the word of God and through the spirit of God, giving him all the glory for the growth and the fruit of the spirit and the giftings of the spirit that have been given to them. And so verse 26, it says, you will not be like these boasters of pagan kings, Gentiles. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And we know the culture then, and it may still be reflected somewhat now, is that the, the older usually have the greater blessing and responsibilities as well. But he's saying, you be the younger. You be serving. He who governs as he who serves. Verse 27, for who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Now again, remember the context after just saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He's serving himself to his people, to all of us for salvation. And he's saying, this is your salvation, and this is your example to follow. Yes, you are apostles. You are the great leaders that I'm sending out. But stop boasting in yourself. This is a communion and an apostleship in the blood of Christ. And of course, when you look at the New Testament, and Peter and Paul and, and, and the other apostles, you see, by God's grace, the Spirit has humbled them. And under the inspiration of God, they're, they're pouring out true humility and giving all the glory to God, but that has not yet been realized in a, in a powerful way. However, now look at verse 28 and the great comfort that is there. He says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Evidently, by this point, Judas has left. And if you look at the other Gospels, there's a lot more detail about when Judas is there and then when he leaves. And there's debates and discussions about the timing of all that. 
Well, Judas is likely departed by this point. But the other 11 that are there, he says, you have continued with me in my trial. So despite their sin, their boasting, their stupidity, all these things, Christ has been persecuted prior to this point. There are real dangers and escapes they had to make. They're still with him. They're still faithful. Yes, it is a weak faith, but it is a true faith. And what a comfort that is for them. What a comfort that is for us. Because we know our hearts. We know how wayward we are. We know how sinful we are. We know how fearful and frightened we are of wicked people. And how little we want to truly serve the Lord at times. And yet, if we are continuing with the Lord, even weakly and imperfectly, the Lord says to us as well, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. So see the mercy of Christ, the tenderness, even as he firmly corrects and rebukes his disciples. You are still with me. Take heart. I am sustaining you. So these are the lessons that he is teaching his apostles and we should learn from here as well. Uh, Peter. Now Peter, we're going to look at this as I take up more time here. (laughs) In verses 31 through 34, he's about to betray Christ. And Christ is going to warn him of that. He's going to boast in himself. Oh Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'll go with you to death. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> but Christ prays for him and sustains him. Well, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, now he's been humbled. And he's, well, I'm kind of mixing the second and third point together. Christ says, when you return, strengthen your brethren. Here's an example of that from 1 Peter 5. The elders who are among you, this is Peter speaking, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw him, even though he stood far off and betrayed him. He's witnessed these sufferings of Christ. He says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So he's saying this to the elders, as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Yes, you are in a position of authority. You are an overseer. But do it how? Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, like Judas, but eagerly, because you love the people. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, like not kissing the ring, that kind of thing, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Christ, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. He gets it. By God's grace, he gets it and he teaches it. Now we need to get it and live and lead our lives that way as well. And on the very next verse, in First Peter does call for all to be submissive to their elders and so on, and for us all to be clothed in humility and, and, and so on and so forth, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride, boasting, being eager and greedy for money and gain, these are things that will lead you to hate God and hate God's people, even if you're in a position of authority in the church. But humility and true love, that will sustain you through trials and hardships, even if our faith is not as strong as we would like it to be. Well, a few other things to bring in mind, to mind here. Remember, John chapters 13 through 17, all of his words in those chapters take place while he is in the upper room, which is where he is in Luke 22 here, after they've taken the Lord's Supper. In John 13, it says, after they ate, you, you know this passage, I'm sure, he rises up from the supper, he lays aside his garments, he takes a towel, he girds himself, and he washes the disciples' feet with water from a basin. What is Christ doing? He's teaching them here. No, it's not another sacrament that's being instituted, as certain denominations and churches say, but it is an object lesson of the kind of service that Christ is calling us to. Christ is the head of the table. He's the head of the universe. 
but he has come in human flesh to wash his wicked disciples' feet. Sign of our cleansing by Christ, sign of him serving us, and so on and so forth. But he's saying, you go and do likewise. Well, again, Paul understands that. Of course, he wasn't one of the twelve that was there. He comes later. But he says this in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, that's truly God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to his father as a man to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up is first the way down in humility, and then let the Lord exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Let the Lord, let God's people exalt you. Through the humility of the cross, the sacrificial service, comes the exaltation, indeed the exodus that we spoke of, to heaven above, and glory in Christ at the right hand of the Father. So if they wanted to sit on the right hand of the throne of God in majesty, left and right hand, James and John, they needed to be humble. They needed to serve and let the Lord lift them up. Don't dare ask for those sorts of things. Serve the Lord and he may, he will exalt us in due time. Well then, quickly here, verses 28 through 30. Despite their boasting and ignorance, they have endured with him through trials. Peter, he will fall away, but the Lord will restore him and bring him into fellowship. Indeed, it says in verse 29, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this is a promise particular to the apostles, not in every way, shape, or form applicable to all of us. However, it does say in Revelation chapter 3 that to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes in Christ, we will share in that eternal reign and he says, I will welcome you to sit upon my throne. And so this does broadly and loosely apply to all of us. If we endure with him, we shall reign with him. We shall rule with him, as another passage of scripture puts it. But we must persevere. We must hold fast to him to the end. And that word in verse 29, where it says he bestows upon us a kingdom as a strong word. It's his covenant. He covenants with us. He, a testimony in his blood that is how the kingdom is bestowed. And so let us serve him faithfully. Well, finally and briefly, Christ warns boastful Peter that he will deny him, but promises to bring Peter back to faithful service. Notice in verse 31 how he grabs his attention. Simon, Simon, that's the name for Peter. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. The same thing that Satan has done to Judas, possessing him and entering him because Judas was giving himself over. Peter, you're boastful and proud. Satan sees opportunity there for you as well, to sift you and devour you, even as Judas was. But in this case, look at the interposition of Christ and his prayers for him. Verse 32, But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So, he's going to come back, he's going to be strengthened, but your faith, for a time, is going to fail, but not utterly. Well, Peter doesn't yet doesn't believe it yet, doesn't see it yet. Verse 33, he says to Christ, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. He's saying, oh, Lord, no, 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 I would never do that. 
just empty words. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Well, then again, we see the mercy of Christ to great sinners even like Peter. Indeed, all of us, if Christ did not pray for us and intercede for us daily, we would perish. We would fall away. We would not endure. We would be like Judas's. We would be covenant breakers. The parable of the four soils is helpful. Judas was like the soil uh, that received the seed among the thorns. That, that person is like the one who hears the word and the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches, which is what Judas was after, it choke out the word and he becomes unfruitful. Peter was in danger of the following soil, the one who receives it on stony places, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but has no root in himself. He only endures, same word as there, endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Peter was in danger of that. Persecution was coming. Oh, I know you. You were of Christ. No, 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 no. He doesn't want to be associated with Christ because he doesn't want to be hung on a cross. But thanks be to God, he wasn't of that soil. Because he's already been told in verse 28. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. Peter has gone with the Lord. His faith, yeah, it ebbs and flows. It's up and down. It hit a nadir big time here at the bottom. But Christ prays for him that he would not utterly fall and completely and utterly eternally fall away. This is the greatest test, the cross that Peter is facing. Yes, he fails. Now, again, just briefly, if you've heard of the in the early church, the uh, Decian persecution of the Roman Emperor Decius is around the year AD 250. At that time, this was the whole sort of you know pinch the incense to Caesar to the gods and so on, or else face the you know, wrath, the judgment. That was a real burden for the Christians at that time. Those who fell away were called the laps or the lapsi, and they they abandoned now. The sheep scattered, sorry, the shepherds, the pastors, many of them got out of Dodge beforehand, leaving the sheep vulnerable. Some ministers and some members of the church, they were faithful. They were called the confessors. They faced persecution, imprisonment, beatings, maybe even death. But by God's grace, many of them, their lives were spared. When the persecution died down and passed over, then the question was, what do you do with the laps? Because they were coming back, saying, oh, I'm sorry, this is wrong. Please you know, forgive me. Is there forgiveness for me? And there's a whole big dispute in the early church over this. Novatian essentially was heretical on this, but he said, oh, there's no forgiveness for you. This is the unpardonable sin, no hope for you. Basically go to hell, is what he told them. Cyprian, other ministers and religious leaders said, yes, they could be restored, but only through restitution, only through repentance and, and penance, really, of some kind. And there's different degrees of you know, falling away and different degrees of restitution and in general, it seemed like it was a biblical thing to call for and demand. Others just said, I'll just let it back in, not a big deal. Well, that's not true either. But the point is, Peter was brought back in by the grace of God through Christ. And so if we in our lives hopefully have not had that level of a spectacular fall, but we look at our hearts and we know how dead in sin it can be sometimes, even if we're alive in Christ, we feel the weight of the sinful flesh that remains. Look at the hope. Look at the hope for you. Look at the hope of a loved one who has left the faith. Whatever it may be, the Lord may yet bring such a person back into the fold. And indeed, he never departed from Peter. Even though Peter was departing from him, he constantly prayed for him the whole time. 
Now again, none of this is saying that if a minister flakes out in persecution, if I go head for the hills when, when it all goes down, I come back a couple years later and say, hey, I'm here to preach again. No, you shouldn't bring me back to the pulpit. But if there is somebody who's truly repentant, yes, the Lord can forgive even such treachery and betrayal that Peter... And then remember, all the disciples said they scattered for a season when Christ was betrayed. The Lord is gracious and abundant in mercy and kind. And so, as we come to a conclusion, as we look at dangers around us, which aren't nothing compared to what Christ and his disciples faced, let us be comforted with these closing words from the 37th Psalm of David. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the salvation that you give and you grant. We thank you, Lord, that your son Jesus humbled himself coming in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh on the cross. Not only did he die for us, but he lived for us, facing scorn and temptation. He resisted it all. He lived holy, godly lives, life for us and then died for us and rose again. And you exalted him with the name above all names so that we would all bow before you, either in faith or because you have brought down the wicked to hell. Lord, May we be of those who serve you in gladness and holiness, praising you, not boasting in ourselves. May the leaders of this church, of other churches, may the leaders of our rulers, our governors, may the leaders in work and business, may the parents who lead in the home and the husbands lead their wives. Lord, may we all, when we exercise leadership, do it as servants of you and do it in service to others. When we are under others, may we carry that load and obey them according to your word as far as we can in true humility and true service to you father give us wisdom and give us guidance in this and may indeed you graciously reward us in due time knowing that you alone are our firm foundation in christ we ask all this in jesus name amen well, let us respond to god's holy word what we've just heard standing together and singing 404 the church's one foundation and this has four verses on the front and then two more on the back that we will sing together. 404. Everybody ready? The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water.